Taehyung Young grew up on the outskirts of Daegu, South Korea. He lives in a cul-de-sac with a bunch of other kids who are all friends. Though nobody's as close as the boys who live at the end of the street. They do everything together. It's not unusual for Taehyung Young and these five other boys to meet up before school. He'll join them playing in the rice paddy behind his house. Like this one morning in late March 1991, the boys are playing tag, deciding what they'll do with the rest of the day. They mention going up the local hiking path to play, but Terry Young has to head home to eat breakfast. Maybe he'll meet up with them later. When he comes back out an hour later, they're gone. Terry Young isn't sure where they went, so he goes back home. He figures he'll catch up with them that afternoon after Taekwondo lessons, but they never show. And nobody sees the boys alive again. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing persons case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet five young boys who disappeared from their neighborhood in South Korea in 1991. It would take 11 years to find them. During that time, their fathers carried out one of the most extensive, time-consuming searches I've ever covered on this show. But instead of admiration, they were met with cruelty and indifference, at fault for doing too much, criticized for doing too little. All the while, few lifted a finger to help bring the five missing boys home. Their names are Oo Chul Won, Cho Hoo Yun, Kim Young Gyu, Pak Chon In, and Kim Jong Sik. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It's the late 1980s, and a pro-democracy movement has gained momentum in South Korea. Even though the country is still under a military dictatorship, at least in practice, protest and grassroots movements are finding traction in major cities. By 1990, democracy in South Korea feels inevitable. Even the current president, Ro Tae-woo, seems to be in favor. So much so that in 1991, he authorizes local elections for the first time in 30 years. For the first time in decades, 
South Koreans are able to choose their district, city, and county representatives. President Roe even declares Election Day, March 26, 1991, a national holiday, so that every citizen, even in the most remote parts of the country, can take off work and cast their ballot, including teachers, which means every child in the country gets the day off school. For kids like Tae Young and his friends Joel Wan, Hu Yun, Young Gyu, Chan In, and Jong Sik, it means they have the entire morning to play. They all live in Daegu, a city in the southeastern pocket of Korea. It's not the wealthiest area, but the lawns are meticulously manicured. Houses are simple, but orderly. Their neighborhood is on the edge of town, at the foot of Mount Waryong. The back of the mountain is home to a military base, but most of Waryong is used as a nature preserve, full of hiking paths that wind through a lush forest. In fact, you can see one of the hiking trails from Chon In's backyard. The friends all live on the same cul-de-sac. Their houses face one another. And because the boys basically grew up together, they're best friends. They do everything together. School, Taekwondo classes, you name it. On the morning of March 26, 1991, the boys meet in the cul-de-sac after breakfast. They don't have anywhere to be until 1 p.m. when they'll walk to their Taekwondo lessons. They spend a little while playing in this massive open rice paddy behind their cul-de-sac. But by 9 a.m., the boys get bored and head up into the mountains. One of them, Tae Young, heads home to eat breakfast. As the others tromp across the rice paddy, an elderly neighbor sees them and asks where they're headed. They tell him to collect salamander eggs. This isn't unusual. Apparently, the boys scavenge for them in the mountain streams from time to time. I don't know why, but this is five boys between the ages of 9 and 13. The potential for mischief is limitless. The neighbor watches as the boys make it across the rice paddy and up the trailhead, disappearing behind the tree line. About four hours later, just a little after 1 p.m., Chul Wan's father, Zhang Wu, gets a call from the Taekwondo Academy. Chul Wan hasn't shown up for class, which is unlike him. Initially, Zhang Wu's annoyed with his son for losing track of time and staying out with his friends. He walks around the cul-de-sac knocking on doors, trying to figure out which house he might be at. Except nobody's seen the boys. Zhang Wu assumes that they must still be out playing somewhere. Chan In's father, Gun So, says he'll go into the village and look for the kids. Meanwhile, the other parents canvass the neighborhood but they also can't find the boys anywhere. At some point, a couple of the parents decide to go to the local police station and report the five boys missing. The police take down the report, but they're slow to act. Or rather, they don't put boots on the ground right away. They tell the parents that the kids are most likely out late playing somewhere. They'll show up at some point. The police do, however, send a copy of their missing person report to the local newspaper. I'm not sure why. It's possible that it's part of their protocol, or maybe they just thought it would be an easy way to get the word out, make sure people's eyes are peeled. But tonally, it seems the paper shares the same view as the police. The boys have only been missing for about six hours at this point. They probably just lost track of time. By evening, as the temperature drops, the parents' hearts begin to race. 
they make their way across the rice paddy and toward the mountain, talking through any possible explanation they could come up with. Maybe one of the boys got injured. But if that were the case, wouldn't the others have run to get help? They know the area well. They might have been playing on a mountain, but it's not isolated. For all intents and purposes, it's their backyard. Like any parent would, Gunso fears that his son may have been kidnapped. But what kidnapper is taking five preteens without anyone noticing? Obviously, children do go missing, but rarely in groups that large. When the parents make it to the mountain trail, they comb the ground with flashlights, searching for any trace of their kids. But no one finds so much as a footprint. It's like their boys were never even on the trail, which we know is impossible. A neighbor saw them head up this specific path. The trail ends near a large pond. The water is as peaceful as ever. Gunso, Chon In's father, walks along it, trying to get his bearings. It's been a while since he was last up this way. Briefly, it crosses his mind that about 100 yards north, there's a military base shooting range. But as soon as the thought enters his mind, he dismisses it. The shooting range is clearly marked, and there's never been an accident involving civilians. Besides, the military is also on holiday to vote. No drills would have been scheduled. Eventually, the parents pack it in. It's late, and everyone but the Kims have other children waiting for them at home. They decide to regroup at daybreak. But back at home, Kim Hyun Do can't rest. Maybe it's because Young Gyu is his only child, but he has this feeling of dread growing in the pit of his stomach. Hyundo describes his son as sweet and sentimental. He says he's depended on his son in a lot of ways, which I take as dad speak to mean Youngyu was the center of his world, his proudest accomplishment and greatest source of joy. And right now, he feels like he failed to protect the most important thing in his life. That night, Hyundo has a dream. It's raining, thunder rolls in, the storm grows fierce, pelting the roof of his home so hard it might cave in. He's standing in the hallway, looking into the living room. The front door is wide open, letting the rain pour in, and in the doorframe stands young Yu. Without a word, the boy turns and begins walking across the rice paddy behind the house. Hyun Do calls to his son. He goes running across the rice paddy, trying to keep up with the apparition, but he can't catch him. Before he wakes up, Young Yu walks away, never so much as glancing over his shoulder to say goodbye. What could be more shocking than uncovering the dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Molly from the Parkhead series, Conspiracy Theories. Each week, we take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction, revealing that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. The Rise and Fall of J. Edgar Hoover, 75 Years of Roswell, The Tragic Death of Princess Diana. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may be just outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Conspiracy Theories. 
Listen free only on Spotify. On March 29, 1991, three days after the five boys from Daegu go missing, Jong Sik's father gets an eerie phone call. A deep-voiced man on the other end of the line says he has the boys. He's kidnapped them. And if the parents want to see them alive again, they'll bring a large ransom to a meetup spot nearby. After hanging up, Jong Sik's dad calls the other parents. In a later interview with filmmakers for Make Waves Productions, Chul Wan's father, Jong Woo, remembers feeling a rush of anger as they apparently bicker over how they'll get the money together and who's going to the meetup spot to retrieve the boys. This has been the theme for the past few days. The morning after the boys disappeared, the stress and panic boiled over and parents started pointing fingers, blaming one another for not watching the kids closely enough. They knew the fight was nonsense. The kids went out on their own all the time, but their fears and sadness obscured all logic. In the end, they decide that Jong Woo should be one of the dads to meet up with the kidnapper. He's tall with broad shoulders. He'll be able to handle himself if the exchange goes south. Secretly, Jong Woo debates whether he'll pay the ransom or beat the man to a pulp. The dads and a few police officers arrive early to the meetup point. Anticipation building. But as the minutes tick by, hope fades. Jong Woo says they stood out on the street corner for over an hour. Nobody ever approached them. Turns out, the call was a vicious prank. And that's not the only fake phone call they get. Not long after, a young boy calls the school the boys went to, pretending to be Jong Sik. He's crying, asking for his mom. Mrs. Kim rushes to the school with one of the two other moms, only to realize it was another twisted joke. The other moms hold her as she falls to pieces, furious that her family has been the target of such cruelty, not once, but twice. At this point, the boys have been missing for three days and nobody seems willing to help. Their parents have been hounding the police, but officials believe the kids ran away from home. They say the best option is to wait. The boys will come home when they're ready. But instead of allowing the rage to consume them, the parents realize the only way they're going to find their sons is by banding together, by making amends and channeling their anger into something productive. Over the next few days, they print thousands of flyers, plaster their sons' faces all over Daegu, stand on street corners handing them out, and it doesn't take long for word to travel. About two days later, a local news station expresses interest in the story. They interview the dads and provide a number for anyone with information on the missing boys. During this news segment, the reporter says that the five boys disappeared while out searching for frogs, not salamander eggs. It's inaccurate, but the moniker sticks. From that moment forward, they're referred to as the frog boys. Within a week, the Frog Boys make national headlines. Like Gunso, the public can't get over the fact that five children went missing at once. All of Korea is equally captivated by the five fathers. The public finds their devotion to their sons so inspiring, they basically become overnight celebrities. And because they go everywhere together, they're instantly recognizable. 
which works in the family's favor. They want the story out there. It generates leads. And logically, the more people recognize the boys' faces, the more likely they could be spotted and brought home. So all five dads quit their jobs. They buy a moving truck and wallpaper the sides of it with pictures of the boys. Beneath the photos, they paint the words, please help find our missing children. They outfit the truck with a bullhorn and drive through the streets of Daegu, repeating that phrase over and over. Please help us find our missing children. After they've covered every square inch of Daegu, the search turns into a cross-country trek. The story becomes so big that over the next few months, thousands of volunteers show up to help canvas Mount Wari Young. Unfortunately, the teams don't find anything, but the attention does create public pressure. The Daegu police have to look into the disappearance. Except their search is half-hearted at best and doesn't seem to last more than a week or two. They canvass the mountain, but don't come up with a single piece of evidence. And even though the station is flooded with hundreds of calls, the police don't field any real leads. So they double down on the runaway angle, despite no one else thinking it's a viable option. By October, the Frog Boys are the most instantly recognizable kids in South Korea. It's been more than six months. If they just ran away, surely somebody would have seen them by now. Besides, they're kids. They don't have money. Where exactly are they going to go? At this point, most people believe the boys were victims of foul play. This theory gains more traction when one of the boys' schoolmates comes forward with a strange story. They tell the parents that on the morning of March 26th, they heard a gunshot coming from the mountain, followed by a scream. Now, we can't know for certain that the witness heard an actual gunshot. If they were a classmate of the boys, it means the witness was between the ages of 9 and 13. But the public has a reason to take it seriously. South Korea may have strict gun laws, but in 1991, the country is dealing with a particular form of gun violence, shootings perpetrated by the military and law enforcement. It wasn't a rampant issue the way mass shootings currently are in the US, but it was enough for the public to take a vested interest in curbing the number of shootings happening on army bases and by those in law enforcement. So it's not long before the public turns their attention toward the military base on Mount War Young. More specifically, the shooting range just a few hundred feet north of the hiking trail. It seems obvious that the base should be investigated, but the police dismiss this gunshot story outright. They won't even entertain the idea of a shooting accident. They remind the public that the Frog Boys disappeared on a national holiday. There wouldn't have been any military drills scheduled. But the more the police refuse to investigate, the more suspicious they look. See, at this moment in history, South Koreans don't inherently trust their institutions. The country's moving toward democracy, but for the past 30 years, they've essentially operated as a military dictatorship, meaning the systems in place for law enforcement weren't designed to serve and protect. They were designed to enforce. It's created an adversarial relationship between law enforcement and the general public. And for the families of the Frog Boys, there's no way to hold officials accountable beyond media attention. 
But by 1992, the police refused to investigate further. And with no new developments, the public starts losing interest in the case, which to the parents is like a death knell. They make a few more plays to keep the Frog Boys top of mind. They give a film director permission to write and produce a movie about their kids, and a Korean pop star agrees to write a song about them. But none of these efforts get the boys back into the news cycle in any meaningful way. And the more time passes, the deeper the five families dig themselves into debt. For three years, they traverse South Korea, begging for attention from a public that's moved on. In an interview with Make Waves Productions, a nonprofit worker remembers seeing the fathers once on a street corner in Incheon, Korea, handing out pamphlets to passersby. A middle-aged woman takes a pamphlet and without looking at it, stops, bends down, and uses it to wipe a wad of gum off her shoe. As volunteers stop showing up in Daegu, the families start to spiral. Hyun-do is scared to sleep because he doesn't want to dream about his son, but he doesn't like being awake either. So he starts abusing sleeping pills. It's the only way he can black out completely. Hyun-do only gets help after the other dads notice the change in his physical appearance. He's taking so many sleeping pills that his face gets pale and according to him, actually starts to turn blue. Several other dads self-medicate with alcohol. By the end of 1994, the men are exhausted, browbeaten. They're in so much debt, they can never hope to pay it all off. And on top of everything, they feel like they're letting down the only family they have left, their wives and other children. They make the difficult decision to return home for good. They announce that while they'll never end the search for their sons, it's time to go back to work and try to regain some sense of normalcy. But instead of the supportive, understanding public that championed the Frog Boys for years, the dads are greeted with backlash. People are furious at them for giving up their search. They're called bad fathers. They're shamed if they ever smile in public or seem happy in any way. The families can't understand where this hate is coming from. But just when it seems like things can't get worse, the parents receive a phone call from the military base on Mount Young. They want to help, and they know how to find the boys. On a chilly night in late fall 1994, the parents of the missing frog boys arrive at the military base on Mount Young. Under the cover of darkness, they're led to a massive tent set up near the woods, where a handful of soldiers are waiting inside. Now, I have to warn you that what I'm about to tell you will sound absolutely wild. And to this day, the parents still don't have an explanation for what happened. But in the tent, they're asked to sit in a circle as an officer explains to them why they've been summoned. He says the military has developed advanced technology that will instill one of them with supernatural abilities. Whichever parent receives these powers will be able to lead the entire group to their children. The parents exchange confused glances as they try to grapple with what's being said. This sounds impossible, but these aren't some random people. It's the South Korean military. The parents sit absolutely still as someone starts moving around behind them. They think it's a soldier. He places his hands on either side of Gunso's temples, as though instilling him with some kind of supernatural force. 
it's weird. The soldier moves on to Gunso's wife, then down the line until they reach Hyundo and his wife. When the soldier places his hands on Mrs. Kim's head, she breathes deeper. It's as if something is stirring within her. As she gets more worked up, the soldiers spring to life. They say she's the empowered one, and they tell the other parents to follow her. Mrs. Kim runs from the tent and through the woods. It's raining, but the other parents follow her anyway. Hyundo remembers his shoes sticking in the mud, making it hard to keep up with his wife. Eventually, Mrs. Kim stops and throws herself to the ground, crying. Our children are here. Unsure of what else to do, the parents start digging into the earth and searching the ground, praying for any remains of their children. But they find nothing. The whole affair was either some weird kind of prank or an incredibly misguided attempt to help. Mrs. Kim was not in on it. She was just susceptible to the power of suggestion. Remember, Hyung-gyu was their only child. She and Hyun-do were having an especially hard time with his disappearance. I really have a hard time even knowing where to begin with this one. I cannot imagine why the Korean military did this to these grieving parents. Whether they were angry because of all the negative press they received after the Frog Boys disappeared, if this was sanctioned by the base, or just a few officers acting alone. Either way, it was way out of line. It's like every time they start to move on, someone comes out of left field to re-traumatize them. Like the world doesn't want them to be happy again. And unfortunately, the trend continues. By early January 1996, it's been almost five years since the Frog Boys disappeared. A man in a black suit shows up at jong Woo's door. He introduces himself as Kim Ga-won, a criminal psychology professor from the United States who's been following the Frog Boys case closely. And he says he knows where the boys are. They're buried beneath Kim Jong-sik's house. jong Woo blinks. It takes a second for what this professor is suggesting to sink in. He's implying that jong Sik's father killed his own child, plus four others, and buried them beneath his own house. It's the most outlandish thing jong Woo's ever heard. He spent three years traveling with jong Sik's dad around the clock. He knows him well, and there's no way he's a killer. The accusation is so absurd that jong Woo slams the door in Gawan's face. What makes this hard, though, is that jong Woo can't know whether Ga-Wan is acting in good faith or just trying to involve himself in the Frog Boy's case. From past experience, he knows that people will go to odd extremes for attention, and what he wishes those people would understand is, every time they tell him they have the answers and they don't, they break his heart all over again. But Ga-Wan doesn't stop at one slammed door. Instead of backing off, the American professor connects with the other parents and simultaneously takes his theories to the media. And without any evidence, the public believes him. No matter how many times Yundo, Gunso, and Jong Woo tell Gawan to back off, his ideas still gain traction. Things snowball quickly. And a week or so later, on January 12th, 1996, a set of news crews show up to watch a small excavation team dig up John Six's house. The whole neighborhood comes out and huddles in the cul-de-sac, waiting to see if the excavators will find the boys. 
They spend hours destroying John Sik's house, but predictably, they find nothing. Jong Sik's parents are angry, humiliated, and the other parents are enraged for them. They've all had it with the mean pranks, conspiracy theories, the shameful looks they get when they're out in public, or playing with the children they have left. And as Jong Sik's dad takes in his ruined house, something snaps. He starts yelling at Gawan, and for the first time in months, the crowd stands with him. Gawan quickly realizes this has become a hostile situation. He barrels through the crowd, trying to get away from the five parents. Jong Sik's dad yells to catch him. The crowd grabs at Gawan, trying to wrestle him back to face up to what he's done. Eventually, the police take him into custody for his own safety. The next day, Gawan apologizes publicly for involving himself in the case, essentially admitting that he's a fraud. He says he'll take full responsibility for repairing the house, but to Jong Sik's parents, it's like covering a bullet hole with a band-aid. Jong Sik's dad confronts Gawan, saying, we had finally rebuilt our lives after the tragedy of losing our children, that this whole charade felt like his son had been killed twice. For whatever reason, John Sick's parents had endured a unique kind of torment over the past five years. Back in 1991, they fielded both prank calls, the guy asking for ransom and the kid who called into the boys' school pretending to be John Sick. And now, they didn't even have a home to retreat to. Their only safe space was upended and destroyed. There's just no fixing that. Not too long after this incident, Jong Sik's dad falls ill and eventually passes away. He was around 40 at the time. The other families say he died of stress and resentment. In fact, all the families seem to take a turn for the worst after this incident. Before this, Gun So was depressed. But now he's angry. He starts picking fights over the smallest things, like a walking powder keg. At some point in the next few years, he gets into some kind of altercation with law enforcement. He's charged with obstruction of justice for fighting a police officer, and he's thrown into a detention center. I don't know how long his sentence is, but on September 26, 2002, I know he's in prison, because that morning, a guard comes to Gunso's cell and delivers some news. His son's body has been found. At first, Gunso can't believe it. After all the cruel, awful pranks he's suffered, he refuses to get his hopes up. But over the course of the next few hours, he learns it's not a prank. That morning, some hikers had been taking the mountain trail in Daegu up toward the pond. They wandered off the path collecting acorns, except one of these acorns turned out to be a piece of bone. As the guards fill him in on the details, Gun So can't believe it. Neither can the other parents. But what's most frustrating is that when they arrive at the excavation site, they realize volunteers never really looked here because police swore up and down that they had covered this area. For the record, soil samples later taken from the site confirm that the bodies were in the same spot the entire time. The police just probably never looked. Although the parents are probably so emotionally exhausted at this point, they can't even feel their anger just that overwhelming wave of energy that makes you numb and heavy all at once. By the time the families get to the mountain, the police are already excavating the site. It's roped off, 
but Hyundo is called over to identify the tattered, decomposed clothing in the dirt. He recognizes his son's jacket immediately. He hadn't thought about it since the day Chan In went missing, but the second he sees the red and blue nylon, he knows that it's his kid. He also notices that the arms are tied together, and it's not the only one. As police search the pit, they find that all of the sleeves on the boys' shirts have been knotted in front, like little straight jackets. They don't know what to make of it, but when Hyando moves his son's jacket, a few bullet casings fall onto the ground. Chan In must have found the casings and stuffed them into his pockets. The parents huddle together and watch as the police dig deeper into the earth, doing work they shouldn't be doing. See, the police aren't trained to do forensic work. That's true just about anywhere. When police find a body, they call an expert team to come in and properly excavate. Now, the South Korean police do call a forensics expert. His name is Chae Jong Min, and he works at the local university. But instead of waiting for him, they lay out a bunch of newspapers and start digging up the bones themselves. Then they separate the bones by type. They put all five skulls together, stack the long bones in a pile. This whole process is not only disrespectful, it completely violates protocol. Che, the forensic expert, is horrified when he arrives at the scene. He and his team tell the police to stop what they're doing, but the damage is done. Each bone fragment, each scrap of clothing is evidence. And because they didn't follow protocol, every bone the police touched is no longer admissible in court. Basically, if a suspect is ever found, the prosecutor would have to build a case with only a fraction of the evidence. Obviously, these are colossal errors, but some see the police's actions as a purposeful obstruction of justice, especially because the next day, before Che and his team are even finished excavating the site, the police chief holds a press conference announcing that the official cause of death for all five boys is hypothermia. Neither Che nor the parents can believe it, especially later, after Che and his team finishes examining the bones. What he finds is sickening. All five sets of bones are covered in ligature marks. One of the boy's skulls has two holes in it. It's determined he died of blunt force trauma to the head, not hypothermia at all. The question is, who did this? Who heartlessly murdered five kids? As the parents talk to reporters about these autopsies, South Korea is once again invested in the case, and they are laser-focused on the shooting range, just 100 or so meters from where the bodies are found. Military brass reminds the public that there were no shooting drills that day on account of the national holiday. But what they don't mention is, commissioned officers were allowed to go onto the range whenever they wanted, even on holidays. And according to army logs, someone did go shooting that morning. His identity has never been made public. In 2004, the police agreed to reinvestigate the Frog Boys' disappearance case. There's no telling how thoroughly they investigate, but they apparently don't find any new leads or evidence. Over the past two years, the boys were kept in the morgue at the local university's forensics lab. So in 2004, that's where the parents decide to hold their funeral. 
13 years after the boys go missing, they're laid to rest. The parents have their bodies cremated. Their ashes spread into the Nakdong River so they can eventually float away into the Pacific Ocean. Gunso explains that because the boys died together, they wanted them to be able to play together in the afterlife. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Aaron Lan, with writing assistance by Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.